any project, there's always challenges that you're going to be facing and some could be derailing. But the opportunity was so great to make a difference that we couldn't be deterred. So we kept pushing forward. But there's been a lot of, lot of challenges from, from the beginning. But I, th I feel like we're in a great place now. Well, Ryan, you're welcome. For what? There's so many things that you, you've done. I can't pick just what this could be about. I know, right? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking all about the Smoky Stadium, whether it was still a go, whether it still had promise, whether fans should still be engaged. And we challenged, invited none other than Randy Boyd to come on the podcast and tell us why we should be excited for this next phase of the Smoky Stadium. And today... That challenge has been fulfilled. Right. And if Randy Boyd has time to listen to the scruffy stuff, as many things as he has going on, there's no excuse for you listeners out there not to be tuning into every single episode. And if you're just tuning in today, what better episode for you to land on? Because yes, like you said, Randy Boyd has joined us on the podcast. So is Doug Kershoffer, the CEO of the Tennessee Smokies. And uh, also Joel Christopher, our executive editor, um, was there as well. And we talked to all of these people about just what you said, what the stadium means moving forward, how this project is coming along, and um, reasons to get excited about not just the stadium, but all that development that is expected to come around the stadium. And we got a few really interesting pieces of information out of Randy today that haven't been reported anywhere else. Uh, so I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear from him directly. I am very excited about that too, but I think it's important we mention to listeners that if you're interested in the financing and how all the numbers are going to work, we got into that a lot in a previous episode of the Scruffy Stuff podcast a couple weeks ago now, and there was plenty of reporting about that over at knoxnews.com. Go check that out, but don't turn the dial. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. Brenna was absolutely right that there is stuff in this podcast that has not been reported before, and I am so excited to be able to share that with you. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome to The Scruffy Stuff, a podcast about all the news happening in and around downtown Knoxville. I am Ryan Willis, downtown reporter at Knox News. And I'm Brenna McDermott, growth and development editor at Knox News. And The Scruffy Stuff is presented by KnoxNews.com, where you can find everything we discuss here on the show and a whole lot more. Knox News relies on support from readers and listeners to provide you compelling stories from Knoxville and across East Tennessee. Subscribers get an all-access pass to all of our premium, exclusive content. And to become a subscriber, it's easy. Just visit knoxnews.com slash subscribe to see our latest offer and sign up today. For having me on the show. Yeah. I appreciate you and Brenna having me and uh, listened to your previous podcast in which you had lots of questions and uh, the whole time I was thinking, I know the answer to that. I cannot wait to be on the show. So I'm excited to be able to answer those questions. So I sometimes laugh when somebody uh, refers to me as a developer. I'm not a developer. It's not what I, I set out to do. It's not my career, but it, I find myself doing, developing things to get uh, big things done. In this particular case, um, I've learned a lot about along the process. So. Um, what, to get to the what you call the guaranteed maximum price, you have to have uh, completed construction documents. We've had schematic designs. Now we need to move to construction documents. We're uh, about six weeks away from completed 100% construction documents. We expect those by the end of October. With those, then the builder can go out to all the subcontractors and ask for final prices. Before, we would have estimates of what the design might be, and so the bidders would give us estimates on what they might be able to do it for. When we get the construction documents, uh, by the end of October, we can go out for bid, and we expect to get the bids in um, and completed in total by the first of the year. 
So, Randy, I feel like we're entering a period of time where there's going to be a little bit of a lull in terms of um, news coming out about the stadium. The TIF has been expanded. Uh, construction started, although it's not the particularly exciting type of construction that people want to see. You know, you're doing the, the base work. So how do you um, keep public engagement high for this project, even though Smokey's baseball is still a few years off? Well, I can say first off, there's not going to be a lull. If you're involved in this project, there are dozens and dozens of different projects going on underway all at the same time, from infrastructure to um, completing construction design for the apartment building to the condominiums, uh, uh, concluding what retail space should be. So I'd say over the next two, two years, uh, we expect to have a continuing stream of great new news. Um, when the apartments are named and when um, people can start actually leasing apartments. That'll be a, an exciting news. I can tell you with the condominiums, um, we've already sold out all the condominiums before we made a, made a release. Um, the apartments, we want to make sure everybody gets as, as much advance notice as possible because they're going to be really cool. In fact, I kind of wish that maybe I just decided to rent an apartment rather than get the condo because the, con the, the apartments will have the better view. Um, out in center field with a, a, a pool down below looking into the, into the stadium, it'll be, it'll be really, really cool. We've got probably three times more retailers wanting to have the retail space than we have space. So as we start announcing some of the people that we select, that will be exciting news that we'll be able to announce. Um, we've got all kinds of other partnerships from soccer to concert venues that we'll be announcing. So there'll be a lot of activity building up to when we open in 2025. Yeah, and I think that, um yeah, you know, the development is such a, a key part of it. I mean, we keep talking about the the stadium, and I know when we refer to it, we say the stadium project, but it, but it's so much more than that. And I, I want to get into that here in a minute. But one more question is related to, to to baseball specifically and the team. I'm I'm curious about the the fan base that's here in Knoxville and versus the fan base that's in Kodak and sort of how um, how you go about building a, a fan base in a new city. I mean, I know it's not like we're talking like a, another side of the country, right? We're just you know a, a short drive away. But is there that fan base already here? Is it is it I imagine it's not starting from scratch, but what is sort of your understanding of how many Smokies fans there are here and where those, you know, those fans that go to Kodak, if they, you know, are, are going to be fans here in Knoxville as well? The fans are already here. They are in Knoxville. 65% of the fans that come to a game at Kodak come from Knox County or further west. Uh, so we're going to be more accessible to more fans in Knox County than we ever were before. The, the fans that are in Jefferson County and Blunt and uh, Sevier and uh, some of the other in Hamblin, some of the further east counties will make the drive uh, to downtown Knoxville. In fact, I think we'll bring more of them to downtown Knoxville than maybe to Kodak because if they come to Knoxville, they can not only go to a ball game, but they go to dinner and do other things as well. Maybe some of them may even make a weekend of it, come down and spend the weekend in Knoxville and do all the other fun things like go to the zoo and uh, maybe enjoy some of our urban wilderness and go to a ball game. You mentioned the development around the stadium and the, the tenants, the retailers, the restaurateurs who are interested in establishing their businesses around the stadium. How do you kind of craft an environment that feels holistic and exciting for fans and how do you parse through all of those interested parties? Well, with regards just to the mixed-use area, we've got a, uh, people that are much more expert than me knowing what combinations to put together. I mean, we don't want 10 coffee shops. We don't want 10 distilleries. We need to have a combination of things that provides uh, fun and entertainment uh, for people that are visiting, plus all the people that are going to be living in the area. You know, we'll have the 42 condos, probably 250 apartments, which is going to be in total maybe bringing three or 400 more people 
just to that one area. Plus, all around us, other apartments are going up. You know, stockyard lofts have just been built. So, and I imagine there will be a range of other uh, retailers and uh, apartments going up and uh, other living structures going up in the area. Also, we have Austin Homes, which is going up at the same time. One of the things I, I love about this project is it's integrating our city, uh, bringing people with all kinds of incomes all together in one spot. As we started off with this project initially, the idea was to build a bridge to East Knoxville so that we could connect the thriving downtown uh, with uh, inner East Knoxville and pull these two parts of our town together. And this project is going to do that. Yeah, I think the the number that we've reported, and I don't know if this number has changed because I know you know price tags have been changing like crazy with the construction costs related specifically to the stadium. But I think it was $142 million in private development around the stadium. And I'm wondering, one, if that number has changed. But also, it sounds like what you're talking about with, you know, we don't want 10 coffee shops. We don't want three bars or, you know, the same restaurant serving the same food. How much control do you actually have over that when you're trying to, you know, craft a, a essentially creating a, a, a new district over here in the old city. And if it's just, you know, the, the multi-use parts of the stadium, what about the other developments that come around there? Is there any sort of process for making sure that those that those other developments that are coming in privately also sort of fit into this district? And are you do you have any personal involvement in that? The, the only part that we have control over would be the buildings that we're building. So we, of course, building the stadium, we're building the condominium complex, which will have retail space. We'll have the apartments, which will have retail space. And we can control who we pick to go into those areas. And I own a couple of extra parcels next to it that I may may develop, well, I will develop, um, but that's maybe after we get this this done. But the other things beyond that, um, and there'll be a lot, will be up to the market. And I think that's probably always best. You know, people that are entrepreneurs that are in this business, that are actually real developers, uh, will uh, determine um, what kind of retail and mixed use that they, they see uh, that would be the best fit. And I'm sure some of them will be successful and some won't, that's the marketplace. And, um, but I think um, there'll be a, a whole range of ideas. One thing I can say that um, is it really exciting is to see how much interest there is in uh, the entire area. Pieces of property all around the area are being snapped up and all kinds of ideas are bubbling around new projects. But they're all contingent on the stadium being built. Um, when I think about sometimes, uh, you know, when, when, when things might, uh, seem challenging and whether we can get the stadium uh, built or not, get approved, which now that's behind us and it's approved. But the thing that I worried about the most were all those other people whose hopes and dreams have been built on the stadium. What does the timeline look like? I mean, it sounds like the stuff, the buildings that you're building are going to come online when the stadium comes online. But as far as, you know, the whole future of this area, how, how long of a plan is that? And when do you think it's actually going to, you know, look like this, this full district that, that, you know, you've imagined? It'll take some time, I can't predict that. I can say in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when they built their stadium, it took 10 years uh, for them to build $1.3 billion worth of investment. That's way beyond what we're expecting to, uh, to be developed in Knoxville. But Knoxville's a bigger city. We've got a lot more going on than Fort Wayne did. So if they can do $1.3 billion in 10 years, I would hope that we could do even better. Um, I think too that a lot of the developers are not gonna wait till the stadium gets built. They're gonna wait till our apartments are sold. You know, if suddenly we have sold every one of the apartments and every, every one of the condos, and we've got a waiting, waiting list of two or 300 people waiting to get in, if I'm a, an apartment de a developer, I would be building right then uh, because you know that you've got the pent up demand. So 2035, what do you envision that area looking and feeling like, both for people who live there and who come for, for baseball or concerts or soccer? 2035, uh, this area will be the epicenter of 
downtown Knoxville. We'll have Market Square, we'll have Gay Street, but this will be maybe like the Gulch is in Nashville, but a place where people go for entertainment, for restaurants, for food, for fun. Um, and it will also be a melting pot for the city in which place people from all across the city, including East Knoxville, also come and be a part of, um, as opposed to now, which I do believe there is a barrier with James White Parkway. We'll, we'll be knocking down that barrier, that wall, and connecting our city for the first time in, in maybe a century. Yeah, those, those last two answers kind of go into my next question. You might have partially answered it, but I was going to ask, you know, if you had any examples of other cities that have done it right. I mean, I don't know if Fort, I imagine you spent some time in Fort Wayne. I imagine you spent time probably visiting other stadiums and other places. I mean, what were some of the key takeaways and some of the places that you thought really had, you know, uh, this development in the stadium, the mixed use um, sort of vision that you have figured out? Yeah, so there's plenty of great examples in, in Major League Baseball. You could look at uh, the uh, uh, Coors Field in, in downtown uh, Denver that's turned what's called the, uh, the well, Lodo, I think, is, yes. I think it's Lodo, but uh, lower downtown. Now it's like the center of Denver. That, and this was an area that you wouldn't go to 20 years ago before the stadium was built. In minor league baseball, Fort, Fort um, Wayne is a great example. Um, the mayor told us that uh, 20 years ago before they built the stadium, they had zero crime in downtown uh, Fort Wayne because there was nobody in downtown Fort Wayne. It was, it was completely deserted. Now, I don't know about crime, but they, did, they have tons of investment in retail. Uh, they've got $1.3 billion worth of additional investment. We also went down to Columbia, South Carolina, and they built a stadium there that's now becoming a catalyst for lots of growth there. It's not quite to where Fort Wayne is, but it's growing fast. Raleigh-Durham is a, a great example. All across the country, when stadiums are built in a downtown blighted area, it can be uh, a renaissance for that particular area. Too often in the past, you'd be build stadiums out in the suburbs, and it really doesn't spark the same type of growth or other investment. It's, it's a nice venue for that one event, but people drive there and they drive off. And you want to go to a place where people can walk uh, and be surrounded by other places for them to be entertained and to spend money. Right. I was going to challenge you a little bit on that Durham example because I went to I went to UNC Chapel Hill and went to those Durham games and I think I guess the one big thing that's different between this project and that project is you have that giant parking structure built right next to the stadium. So it sounds like what y'all are doing is a little bit different. It sounds like there's going to be people walking around and maybe now is actually a good time to bring up the parking situation because I know we've reported on that a lot, but um, I still think people have this idea that there's not enough parking to support a downtown stadium. Can you talk a little bit about um, that and why you wanted to take that route? Because like I said, for me in Durham, I was just there a couple weeks ago and I saw that the, there was a lot of people walking around, but they were walking from the parking garage to the stadium and after the game from the stadium to the parking garage, myself included. So, I mean, well, there's a lot of great examples of downtown stadiums like Fenway and uh, Wrigley. And I guess my favorite, because I'm a Cubs fan, I'll pick Wrigley. But you go to Wrigley, there's not a sea of parking lots all around it, but there's plenty of parking uh, within a, a reasonable distance. And you know, they hold 40,000 people and there's not a, a huge parking garage next to, next to Wrigley Field. What you do find at a Wrigley game is that uh, oftentimes, there's just as much activity going on outside the stadium as in, and a lot of people go to the games never going into the stadium. They just go to be a part of the overall experience, and, and we're hopeful that we can have the same thing. In our stadium, um, there will be, there's the, the study that we, we commissioned 
two years ago now, showed that there was like 3,000 parking lots within a, or parking spaces within a quarter mile, 7,000 within a half a mile, like 14,000 over a mile. So there's lots of parking. I hear this often, even in the old city. You know, um, my, my wife has a pub in, in the old city, uh, uh, commercial warning. Uh, Boyd's Jig and Reel, uh, she, my wife plays Tuesdays and Thursday nights. Um, best uh, fish and chips on the planet. But um, she'll get comments from people all the time saying, Oh, yeah, we go down to the old city, there's no place to park. Get an aerial map and look at the old city. Right. It's a handful of little buildings in a sea of parking lot. But because it's not Walmart, because you can't pull up right next to the front door, people don't feel like that there's a place to park. But we're, we've got, we're awash in parking. Right. You might have to walk a couple of blocks, but that's kind of the idea. We want people to walk and experience a city. We don't want them to drive in, park, and drive out. Yeah, I think it's important to remind our listeners that this is a multi-use stadium, not just baseball. We know soccer, we know concerts. What else can you tell us about what might go on at the stadium and how will that be coordinated, marketed to the public? Yeah, so thank you for asking that because um, that's been our goal all along is to make this the People's Park, something that is available 365 days out of the year with multiple events going on all at the same time or diff different times during the, the same day. Again, using the Fort Wayne example, when we went to visit them last year, the owner was telling us that the previous year they had had 760 something different events. So on the day that we were there, there was a far farmer's market going on and two different weddings going on. Uh, so we picture weddings, family reunions, farmer's markets, um, uh, professional soccer 20 games out of the year uh, we expect to have uh, high school and college tournaments uh, we do that now in Kodak but in Kodak again they drive in they drive out here in Knoxville we have a three-day tournament uh, when the Smokies aren't playing we can have uh, families and their fans uh, staying in for for um, for the entire weekend um, we expect to have uh, concerts we're gonna we are designing this particular venue for easy in and easy out loading of, of concert equipment. Our current facility isn't that way. So it takes three days to load all the equipment to have a concert there. Nobody really wants to do that anymore. The new, the new venue will have it such that you can bring in the, the trucks and set up the, the equipment in, in hours. And so we expect to have lots of, lots of concerts. So the goal would be to have hundreds and hundreds of events a, uh, a year. Um, big and small. It's also going to be the concourse is open to the public. That was important to us. So during the day, if you happen to live in the area or work in the area and you just want to take a nice walk, um, you can walk to the stadium, walk around the concourse. If you want to take your laps for the day, go walk the concourse a few times. If you want to have your, your, your lunch sitting in one of the seats, you can have your lunch watching, uh, watching the, the field and imagining uh, your favorite uh, baseball or, or soccer player there. The idea with a facility like this is to make it available and to be, to be uh, to be a great venue and easy to work with so that people want to bring their the office Christmas party to the, to the club at, at the stadium, uh, that their family reunion or what, at what any type of business meeting, maybe you want to come down and have a business meeting. We've got, we've got space for that. We've got a, a catering department. Uh, we can be a, a turnkey event planner for, for, for things like that. Randy, do you envision a third-party contractor sort of managing the events there, or is that something the city would run? No, that's what the, there will be. A, the contract is for Boyd Sports to do that. We're going to be paying the the, the city or the sports authority a million dollars a year to um, lease the building, and then uh, for that we manage the, uh, the, the 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 venue, and that's something we do now. You know, and, and that's typical of venues all across the country. Typically, you have one master leasehor who coordinates all that. It would be too cumbersome to have multiple people trying to 
use the same facility. So we're, we're, we'll be booking things. We're also in charge of you know, coordinating all these things as well. And I know you said there's not a lull, especially on y'all's end. I know y'all are staying busy, but I think one of the things that um, has kept the project exciting and probably will continue to keep the project exciting is, is renderings as they become available. I know um, there's been, you know, the project has been scaled back a little bit to address some of these rising costs, but even the new renderings that I've seen, I mean, I think to the untrained eye, you can't really tell that much of a difference between them. I know some of the stuff that y'all took out was like team offices and moved those over to the condo building. Um, for the fan, they're not good. I, I hate when people refer to it as being scaled back because it's really not from a fan point of view. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's actually better. Like some of the things we were trying to do to save funds, we started looking at uh, uh, First Creek. And originally there was a $5 million uh, concrete uh, cover over the, the creek. Somebody had the idea, hey, let's just open up the creek. We can have it as part of the, the stadium design, and it's a, a, an extra cool feature. We get to make it visible for, for folks. It saves money and um, makes the stadium better. Batting cages, they were down below, uh, which cost a lot of money, but we now they're up uh, at, at the, the, the opening concourse where people walk in. So when you come in, now you can actually watch players using the batting, batting cages, which is, which is really cool. Something for us that was a cost, um, but it's, it, it, we needed to do it to make the, the project work. But we, in every baseball stadium in the country, the team's offices are in the stadium. But us taking our offices out and putting them in one of the, the buildings that we're building it saved the stadium about $2 million. So, um, so, so most of the things that have been reduced, most fans won't see. Right, and, that, and that's well. Part of that's what I was getting at was that these renderings have been showing some things that maybe we didn't see in the original renderings. I know one of the big things that I thought was was pretty cool was that Tennessee shaped scoreboard in center field. I know there'd been some conversations about incorporating that uh, water tower into the stadium, and so I'm just wondering. You've already you've already mentioned a few, but uh, is there any other? Just um, I think I heard you refer to them as character pieces uh, in the stadium that that you're particularly excited about. Um, just to paint a picture for people that are wondering what this stadium is gonna gonna actually look like compared to what they're used to in Kodak. Any anything else that's being incorporated that's stand out to you? There's there's quite a few exciting character pieces, but I'm thinking if I tell you all of them now, there won't be a reason for another podcast. So, <laughs> kind of fair enough, I guess. <laughs> there, but I, let me let me say this: I think there are a lot of other exciting character pieces and other things that we're going to be adding to it that's going to continue to make it exciting and just like we did in Kodak. Um, every year, the team gets with me and we look at how we can make the experience better. So it's kind of like Dollywood or any other uh, um, uh, attraction. Every year you want to make the experience better um, and enhance it in some way. So we're gonna be constantly investing um, in the stadium to make it uh, uh, better. People that go to Smokey's Games now and Kodak and eventually will be coming to Knoxville to see those games, what will be the most familiar part of that experience for people that, are, that have been used to seeing games out there we'll, we'll still have homer and all the other other mascots that we have we'll still have though, right? yeah we'll, we'll have a new name it'll be the the knoxville smokies so uh while supplies last make sure you buy your vintage tennessee smokies jersey <laughs> then you'll want to buy your new knoxville jersey Another be the cool sure. kid on the block <laughs> and have yes absolutely always be closing <laughs> but uh um one of the things that are really is really popular is the, uh, the the picnic areas and the open areas for people and groups to, to, to meet. And so this air, this venue is focused on trying to have more unique venues within the, the stadium. Something that is 
been a trend in, in all sports, but particularly in baseball, is getting away from just cramming the, as many people in seats as you can, all facing vertically, uh, looking at the, at the field. People want places to gather and to visit with their friends and family. And so we're designing the stadium to make it uh, a place where people can, can gather and visit and, and, uh, and enjoy each other's company as much as they do the game. Randy, you've been vocal for the past year about your commitment to working with disenfranchised and minority-owned businesses in the, the construction phase of the stadium. How would you grade your performance in that area so far? What's left to be done? And does that commitment extend beyond uh, construction? Uh, so I can't say that I could give ourselves a grade. That'd be kind of gratuitous, but we're doing our best. Uh, we've got a great partner with Knox Area Urban League. And so I, I will give Knox Area Urban League an A+. I can't really grade us, but I'll give them an A+. They've uh, put together a whole array of programs to reach out to the community. Uh, one of the things that has helped with a bit of the, the delay in, in the construction, it's given us an extra six months to a year to help train people to have the, the skills necessary to take some of these jobs. And so that's actually been an advantage for them. But the, our partners there, Phyllis Nichols and Knox Air Urban League have done just a tremendous job in, in reaching out to the community, um, both for people that want jobs and people that want contracts. So I, I would say they've done a tremendous job there. And then uh, our outreach to the community, just like our, our commitment to the fans and making the experience better, will continue long after the construction is done. I mean, this project is a passion project, people use the word, to make a difference in my hometown. And I think it's shared by all the investors that are involved. Uh, nobody's doing this because they're looking to make a lot of money. They're doing it because they care about our city and they think this can be transformative. And that passion's not going to end when the last nail is driven in. It's going to continue on. We were doing some uh, searching through the Knox News archives. I think the first time you spoke with Knox News about your plans was 2016. So it's been about six years since then. Um, did you ever question whether this would come to be? Um, were there moments of doubt for you during those six years? And, and what are you thinking going into this next phase? Um, I guess there hasn't been any doubt in the last six days. But uh, prior to that, there, there was some element of doubt. It's just a, a matter of what percentage it was. No, in any project, there's always, I mean, if you've got to be realistic. There's always some, some um, uh, challenges that you're going to be facing, and some could be derailing. Um, but the opportunity was so great to make a difference that we couldn't be deterred. So we kept pushing forward. But there's been a lot of lot of challenges from from the beginning, you know. And uh, but I, th I feel like we're in a great place now, and we're excited about uh, where, we, where we're off to now. Randy, you'd mentioned earlier that Boyd Sports will handle um, all the bookings, and you've talked a lot about bringing in entertainment as well as baseball and and soccer. And I'm I'm curious. Does that mean an expansion of, of the, the staff and the resources for Boyd Sports? And have you thought about what particular types of music, for instance, that, that might be at the venue? Uh, so I'm going to let the market determine what type of music. If it was up to me, we'd be listening to 70s and 80s uh, rock band, cover bands. But uh, with this new venue, uh, Boyd Sports uh, staff will have to increase dramatically, which means more, more jobs more employment in the area. Exactly the number, I don't think we've got a, a forecast, but it'll be a significant increase to, to, to be able to go from managing 70 baseball games a year to 700 uh, uh, events a year. I'm just curious, what do you know in terms of demographics about Tennessee Smokies 
fans? Would those demographics change with the move to Knoxville? How do you bring in new fans? Yeah, so I maybe would defer to uh, Doug Kirchhofer on the demographics of the existing fans, but I will say it's wide ranging now. We have uh, senior citizens that come every single game and this is what they do. And they love the, the Tennessee Smokies. They can tell you every player and their stats. And they have their scorecards. And then you have the, the, the young families with their children who are there to play in the, on, the, on the inflatable toys and eat, uh, eat candy. I take my granddaughter there and it's, we, we're good until uh, the Dippin' Dots are finished at the end of the third inning and then, and then we kind of try to find something to keep their attention. But she still has a great time. Then um, you have some young professionals, but not that many that will go to uh, Kodak. That part will change. If we're in downtown Knoxville, downtown Knoxville has a, a thriving, uh, 20 and 30 something uh, uh, demographic, and this will be a venue for many of them to go to. I go to stadiums and other places like in Nashville, um, they have something called the band box. Um, in the band box, in the out, outer and right field, they have um, ping pong and putt putt uh, and all these other games that would not allow you to actually watch a baseball game, but that's not the point. A lot of people go for the $10, it's a $10 cover charge for an outdoor party. And uh, that's, I think, something that Knoxville is missing. We need to have more things that attract young professionals to our city. And you, you hear the mayor talk about it all the time, but our population over 65 is increasing by like 25%. Somebody can fact check me on that. Um, but our population between 25 and 45 is, is flat to declining. And if we're gonna be a thriving community, We've got to be able to start creating the, the things that will attract people to our community. And I was, if I could just share one other thing, I used to be the Commissioner of Economic and Community Development. And I remember when I got that job, I thought, this is a really long title. You know, why, when I say Commissioner of Jobs, you know, what's this whole community thing about? But when you get in the job, you real, become a commissioner, you realize that the community is everything because there's no place a company can go to anywhere in America where there's a large pool of talented, unemployed people. They don't exist. What you do is you go to a community that you can attract talent to. And our city to be successful has to create more things that will attract young people to our city. And that will then help the businesses come. So, I mean, just think about 7,000 people coming down there and, and just, you know, access to and from East Knoxville. How how do you go about making sure that there's a, a nice flow and that, that everything's accessible and that, that, that it really is a gateway and not a, a barrier because it's going to be, you know, such a huge development. I mean, I know obviously now during construction, it has to be a barrier. You have to close some roads and stuff down. But I mean, moving forward, once the stadium opens up. And we've been very intentional about designing the stadium so it has a both west and east facing entrance. Uh, on the east side, there's a, a, a entrance just as significant as on the west side to open it up for people coming in from the east side of town. And so we're, we're doing everything we can in the design to make it accessible from all points. To, to build on Ryan's question there, can you take that a little bit wider? Not just the stadium itself, but the neighborhood around it. Um, have you had discussions about what that flow looks like through that district for both, um, well, not just both, for pedestrians, for people on bikes, for cars? And what kind of conversations have you had with uh, city planners around just the flow through the area? I know our, our, our designers and architects have worked with the, the city working through uh, flow and those type of questions. I haven't been on in those meetings. I know that's been something that, that has been talked about from from the very beginning. And and maybe you can answer a simple question for us. So we we have had lots of conversations about what you call that area. Is it is it 
the old city? Is it the West Magnolia Warehouse or, or Magnolia Warehouse District? Uh, is it downtown? How, how do you how do you picture it fitting in in terms of well, nomenclature? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, we have modeled it after Wrigleyville in uh, Chicago, and so we did uh, uh, trademark the term uh, Smokyville. But I'm not sure if that's the the actual name that it will be or not. But um, I guess that name is is to be determined. We haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about that. But it's it's out. But it's it's something in between, really. It's not it's not the Magnolia District. It's not it's not the old city. It's the connector, and so we have to think about what that connector name should be. But it is a bridge between uh, two parts of our town that was missing. And I'll just say again, if we didn't build this bridge those two parts of our city would never be connected. You'd be always separated by this wasteland. And so this is why this project is so important. What are the next big challenges this project faces and and how do you overcome them? I wouldn't say there's any big challenges, just a thousand small ones. You know, every day there's uh, another question about um, like uh, yesterday, ordering uh, plastic piping now so that uh, we can get it on, on order so we don't, it's not a delay and we have to buy it 18 months in advance. So there's, but it's not very exciting little uh, or a challenge, but there's actually dozens and dozens of things like that that we just have to constantly address each one as they come along to make sure that we stay, stay on, on topic but, or on plan. But the, uh, uh, the big challenges, I think, are, have been overcome. Um, we've, we've got all of our approvals the city will be getting their bond uh, in, uh, around end of January, first of February, uh, and then. But in the meantime, and I guess something to know, but the project isn't waiting for the city. Um, I'm advancing the funds to go ahead and do all the infrastructure that KUB needs to have done, all the grading, all the design work. Uh, I've been going ahead and fronting with the assumption that we're going to be successful. One of the best parts about this project has been all the people that believe in it and that I'm thankful for, uh, including our two mayors. Uh, Mayor King Cannon and Mayor Jacobs have been um, rightly thorough and uh, cautious, but uh, when they've done their due diligence, they became also passionate about it and have been uh, incredibly supportive uh, from the very beginning. And and so I'm really thankful for for their leadership and I'm thankful for the people that have worked on the project with me, including Doug Kirchhofer, our CEO of our team, who's been uh, the glue that's held all of this together. And then some of my my partners, our president of Jim, Steve Davis, uh, VFL, he's uh, been adamant about uh, making sure that Minority representation was both in the in the in the contracting phase and in the in the employee phase, and so um, and it's why he's involved in the project. And so I'm so thankful for for everybody that's helped us get to where we are today. Time for my commercial now. I was going to say, aside from reading Knox News, people that want to keep up with the project as it moves along, what's the best way for people just to follow follow the timeline of things as the, as they happen? I think Ryan, maybe you and I and Doug can stay in constant communication and. Make sure that they're constantly tuning into the, your podcast and Knox News for the latest. Awesome. I was going to say, I'm going to hold you to that other podcast. I, uh, I appreciate you joining. Um, and yeah, I hope to talk to you again soon here on the show. I look forward to it. It's nice to finally hear from the people directly involved in the project. I think over the last little bit, we've been going so much through city council and county commission, and there's been documents and TIFFs and all this stuff. And finally, to have a chance to sit down with Randy and Doug and just to hear them share their side of the story and what they're most excited about um, is fantastic. I, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Same. And Randy promised that we will talk again. So, you know, look for him to join the podcast again soon. 
Yeah, and if you don't want to keep hitting that refresh button waiting for that next conversation with Randy Boyd, just go ahead while you're listening to the podcast here on whatever platform that is and hit that like or subscribe button to get a notification every time a new episode comes out or you can just come back on Mondays. And while you're at it, why not leave us a five-star review as well? Tell us what you like about the show, what you would like us to talk about next, or if reaching out directly is more your thing. You know, you can always send me an email or give me a follow on Instagram. I am at Knox Scruff. To keep up with the downtown Knoxville conversation, you can join our free Facebook group. It's called Urban Knoxville. Go ahead and join. Answer a couple simple questions to get in on the conversation. And go ahead and look at that podcast description. There's a little link there at the end that will direct you to our Urban Knoxville newsletter that comes out every Friday. Uh, That's just the place to get even more downtown analysis than even the scruffy stuff can provide. And uh, yeah, just be in the loop about all things happening downtown. And I said it at the top of the show, but I will say it again. Knoxnews.com slash subscribe is the place to support local journalism. While we love your listens, we would also really love you taking advantage of the great offers that we have there. Uh, Just one low price for a lot of access, podcasts, videos, photos, stories, all kinds of stuff. So don't miss out on that. And don't miss out on next week's episode. We'll be back again as always. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next week. Stay scruffy.